Welcome to Bread and Poppies, where we discuss why drugs are good, capitalism is bad, and what to do about it. Hello, my friends. I'm back after an inadvertent break. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't mean there to be such a long time between this episode and the last one, but um, my childcare person uh, got injured, and when you don't have childcare, it's kind of hard to get anything done at all, um, let alone the actual PhD work that uh, I am doing. So, um, yeah, uh, Ella is back in daycare. And I am back um, with the podcast, which is good because this has been a very busy uh, week in politics and it's just going to keep getting more and more crazy as the primaries go on and uh, the DNC continues to try to rat fuck Bernie. So there's a lot of things to talk about. Um, Today I'm going to try to keep it short because I actually uh, have a really interesting sort of, um, wasn't so much an interview, it was just a conversation that I had with two friends and colleagues of mine, uh, back in November at the International Drug Policy Reform Conference. Um, we recorded us, uh, chatting inside a a pizza place during, uh, the lunch break between some of the panels, and we were just kind of talking about some issues, uh, that are intersecting between leftism and drug policy, um, including, why uh, cops are allowed to be at drug policy conferences and whether that's a good idea and kind of the role of police in harm reduction because it's really easy as leftists, you know, a cab and everything. We can just uh, easily write off the police as agents of uh, the imperial white supremacist state, and they are, but on the ground reality for drug users, um, and people who are impacted by the actions of police, it's actually a bit of a more complicated question because it's, I'm not saying that there is, you know, good police and bad police, but there's worse police and less bad police in terms of their individual interactions with people. You know, they make choices as to how to treat people, um, whether to arrest and when to arrest. Um, and so, there's a lot of people in drug policy spaces um, because this is part of the, the harm reduction ethos is reducing harm in any way that we can that are grappling this question of do we try to get police to be less harmful? Um, so we had an interesting conversation about that, which will come afterwards. So, uh, but first, briefly, um, Bernie won! <laughs> I hope everybody is ex- excited about this as I am and feeling really good. Bernie won Iowa, uh, kind of. <laughs> I mean, he did, but the DNC is trying to screw him as we knew that they would. Um, and I think that we can be finally feeling good now. Um, I really wanted to wait to record this uh, for when we you know, had the results and everything. And we, we kind of do now... Um, but in the last couple hours, Tom Perez has said he's going to do a re-canvas, which means like a, like a, basically a recount. So I think the reality that we have to accept is that we're not going to get the Iowa results, um, officially transmitted that we want, uh, anytime soon. We want, we want to have the 
mainstream media on their knees, uh, repenting and admitting that Bernie won. Uh, we all want that, but I don't think we're going to get it. And so we basically just have to be, um, happy with, uh, the fact that the data shows that he won and that's a good narrative for us to have moving into New Hampshire. Um, the one thing that I'm definitely resentful of is that there's been so much tension building throughout this insanely, incredibly long and exhausting primary process that I think myself and a lot of people were waiting for uh, the Iowa primary because we just wanted, we wanted a win. We wanted, you know, a bit of a release of this tension, just like something to make us feel like all of the work that people are doing is actually, actually matters and, and something is actually happening. And we didn't really get that in this sort of climactic way that we were hoping for. It was a big disaster on the night of. And I feel very robbed of, of that night, um, especially because it's been a few days now and we're still just kind of, you know, all of this stuff is coming out about Buttigieg and his, his ties to the app that screwed up the caucuses, some extremely sketchy ties to the company. Um, and so we're, we're talking about that instead of about the fact um, that we won and Bernie's strategy is successful so far. And that's really what we should be focusing on. And um, yeah, it's, it's hard because there's a lot of frustration, but I think we can allow ourselves to feel good uh, going into New Hampshire. It definitely does at the very least. Like, so I'm, I'm not going to get into the fact that uh, you know, I, I, I'm absolutely not going to call any of the facts and information that are coming out about Buttigieg and his ties to the CIA, to the company that made the app, to Pod Save America and the DNC and all of these, um, all of these corrupt ties that are, cause it's, they're not conspiracy theories. They're just facts. Um, you can interpret them however you want. Uh, they're easy to find on, on Twitter, even if the mainstream media is not really reporting all of these financial ties. I'm not going to get into the specifics of that because I find it exhausting. Um, but I do think that uh, the question of whether or not all of these, these ties and corruption, you know, or, or all of these problems are a result of corruption or incompetence is an interesting question. I think it's pretty clear that it's a bit of both, but I think something that people aren't talking about as much, um, I did see, uh, our buddy, uh, Chad Vigorous, pretty bad lefty, uh, talk about this on Twitter, but it's something that I was thinking about from the very start as well, is the fact that regardless of the intention, whether it was intentionally corrupt or just inept, the fact, what, what this really does point to is the fact that for-profit enterprise screws everything up, especially democracy. At the very least, what was happening is they gave this contract to build this, this app that they needed for the caucuses. Well, they didn't really need it, but um, that they, they wanted to have a, a way to, to get the caucus counts in. So they decided to award this contract to a for-profit company because that's what capitalists do. That's how all of this works, is somebody's going to wet their beak, somebody's going to get paid. If you have a service that you have to provide, 
under neoliberalism, the best way to do that is to let somebody make money off of it. And there's all sorts of um, really tired arguments for why for-profit enterprise is more efficient and blah, blah, blah. But it, it's this is clear evidence yet again that it's not actually more efficient. It screws everything up. And our democracy, uh, I say our, I am Canadian, but, you know, our the, the big our in terms of the, the global claim to democracy that human beings should be able to have is it's it should not be involved in any kind of for-profit enterprise like that those those are are for-profit enterprises are fundamentally undemocratic institutions and this is yet another example of how of course it's going to screw it up because people want to make money off of it they're going to cut corners there's not going to be enough oversight it's going to be somebody's somebody's fucking nephew is is making money off of this there's going to be a board of directors that somebody else is on you know it's it's antithetical to what we want to see in an actual democracy. And this shouldn't be surprising to anybody who knows how the U.S. functions, but it's yet another reason why when people say that Bernie is the same as Warren or anybody else, it's they're just not because Bernie is the only person who is articulating a fundamental critique of the for-profit capitalist system and the various ways in which it poisons everything. There are a million examples, but this is just another one, and I feel like it, it's something that people should be talking about more often in terms of the, the fact that this even happened is proof that Bernie is right with his critique of the DNC and its corruption and uh, the fundamental, you know, impact that corporate a corporate-owned system has on democracy. So the fact remains that Bernie won. He won the popular vote, which is also pretty hilarious because anybody who's been screaming about Hillary Clinton having won the popular vote for the last several years is now in a bind because they can't... Well, I say that they can't say that uh, Bernie didn't win under those conditions, but we all know that um, hypocrisy doesn't apply uh, or affect people. Um, it does usually impact liberals more than anyone else. They care about hypocrisy, but they're still not above it. Uh, but the fact remains that he won. It looks like he's going to win New Hampshire, and things are looking really, really good. And for a group of people such as us leftists who are used to just losing and losing and losing um this this is pretty good it's pretty exciting so i want to personally thank everybody who volunteered and donated and canvassed and made phone calls and texted and did everything that they could uh for this iowa win because it wouldn't have been possible without that work like this is clearly like if if this was a, a actually a matter of policy Bernie would have won a hundred percent of the votes. Like his his policies really are, just are the best. But we can see that politics doesn't work that way, and the fact that this is an uphill slog that this many people need to work uh, is it's it's just reality. And so this this win really belongs to everybody. It doesn't just belong to Bernie. It belongs to the entire movement. And so thank you to everybody who did that. I really personally want to <laughs> extend my deepest thanks because there's only so much that I can do when I 
do full-time parenting and full-time PhD work and also do writing work and, I mean, Twitter's not work, but I'm on there a lot. I, I, I just don't have time uh, to do much, but more than anything, I live in Canada and I can't legally do very much to help. Um, I wish that I could drive down to Iowa and, and Canvas and now drive down to New Hampshire, but um, I have a one-year-old, so... It's just not feasible, so I really, really appreciate everybody who did do that work. Keep, keep, on, keep on doing it. This is for you guys. So, here is the conversation that we had at the International Drug Policy Reform Conference in St. Louis, Missouri, between me and Mason Burks and Allison Todd who are part of SSDP, the Students for Sensible Drug Policy organization in the US. I want to apologize for the audio quality. It's not amazing. We did record it inside a pizza place. Uh, Imo's Pizza, to be specific. If you're from St. Louis, that pizza place is delicious. It was recommended to me by a random guy that I met uh, on the train that I took to the conference every day from where I was staying. It was fantastic. So um, I'd, I'd love to go back to St. Louis sometime when it's not uh, freezing and I'm carrying a baby between a conference and my friend's house. But yeah, props to Imo's Pizza in St. Louis. Here we go. Record a little thing for a podcast. So we're back. We're back. All right, so we're here in St. Louis at the International Drug Policy Conference, and I'm here with my friends Mason Burks and Allison Todd. Hello. Hi. And we're just, uh, yeah, we're at a pizza place called Imo's Pizza, which was recommended to me by a guy on the train, um, and we're waiting for our food, and we're just going to talk about, uh, yeah, this, this conference, because it's been really good, it's been very stimulating. Um, and particularly as leftists in this space of drug policy, um, it's been interesting because this is not, like the, all the people that I talk to about drug policy tend to be academics and other leftists, but then you come here and there's like a bunch of libertarians and like marijuana industry people. Law enforcement. And cops. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, it's a bit weird. So I'd, I'd love to talk about two things, actually. I'd love to talk about um, uh, how, you know, like, like why there's a disconnect between um, leftist sort of spaces and organizing and drug policy spaces. Like, why, it, like, drug policy people tend to not overtly address capitalism and, and name capitalism. Like they talk about oppression, they talk about white supremacy, they talk about these systems, but they don't go quite as far as like naming the fact that it's capitalism. And then on the flip side, in socialist spaces and, and leftist spaces, um, I find myself constantly trying to um, get people to talk about white supremacy and mass incarceration, mass incarceration and um, and drug prohibition. So yeah, what is the disconnect there? Um, and yeah, and then the other thing I wanted to talk about was the cop thing. There are cops at this thing. Yeah. There are. Um, and they have panels. Yeah, they lead panels. Yeah. So there was. Do we want to talk about that first? Because wasn't there a panel that was called like, uh, "What role do the police have?" Or like, yeah, what? there. 
There was like, so I went, I actually went to the, the cop panel yesterday. Really? Uh, I did, because I was so curious about it. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so there's, there's one that's coming up at some point that's like, um, it, it has kind of the most ridiculous title. It's like, will prosecutors end the drug war? Mm -hmm. And it's like, really? No. Okay. Yeah. I think we have an answer to that already, and the answer's no. There, but I think the other one was like, what role... Or like, can the police help in the war on drugs or something like that? Yeah. Yes, the actual title is Can Prosecutors End the Drug War? So that was this morning. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, frontline enforcers of the drug war. Can we count on police to do anything but damage? Which I think is a better question. Yeah. But I still think the answer is just no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would, I would generally agree. Um, and, yeah, the one that I went to was... Um, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it was about it was basically about talking to cops, um, how how to speak with police officers. So it was led by um, by Leap, which used to be Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and is now um, the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. It's a little more watered down, and I was annoyed about this change before because at least law enforcement against prohibition is like taking a stand and saying like this thing mm -hmm. is wrong the action partnership like that seems like yeah are you watering down also your your goals mm -hmm. um but so i went to this this session and to their credit it was run by um uh a woman who uh does drug policy and um her her thing is more about like communication like how do we um talk to police organizations, police unions, police chiefs, and city council people and stuff when they're coming from a fundamentally different um, sort of worldview from us um, because it's more conservative. And so their values are different. And so the same words that we used to talk to each other about, uh, you know, white supremacy and fairness and equity and oppression, those words don't resonate with conservatives. And so I did like that part of this panel in that it's, you know, we do need to talk to people that aren't just in our sphere, and if that's um, if it's helpful to change the words that we use and the, the strategies that we use to get people on board with things like safe consumption sites and um, you know safe supply and all that kind of thing, mm -hmm. then great. However, the panel was also run by Leap, who are cops and former cops, and yeah, like somebody pointed out to me on Twitter um, that you know even if it's good to have cops talking to other cops and doing this work and trying to, you know, because it's, it's the principle of harm reduction, right? Mm -hmm. Even if it's good to have them doing that, do we want them... That's good. Thank you. My pizza. Thank you. Thank you so much. Do we want them in these spaces where most of us are drug users, there's activists here, there's formerly incarcerated people here, there's you know, um, very vulnerable people in these spaces who rightfully feel really uncomfortable around cops. And by letting the cops talk and making that part of this whole, you know, um, conversation, who are we leaving out? Who could have taken that spot instead? Yeah. So, thoughts? I mean, I think... Uh, I eat my pizza. <laughs> the combination of, uh, you know, how, to what degree we need to or should be including law enforcement in this conversation is kind of 
in parallel to you know the the interaction with a wonderful libertarian friend, you know, which is <laughs> yeah. To, to, I'm to what extent are we compromising podcast, the? Uh, to what extent are we compromising the capacity of of the community to have a coherent momentum and and movement? And to what to what degree is that being compromised by trying to include every single person that? wants to participate right mm, um, yeah. because on a very superficial level it could be interpreted as you know alienating allies if you're saying oh well we don't want free market obsessed capitalists to be participating in this if they want the drug war to be over mm -hmm. to what extent uh, is it a detriment to alienate law enforcement if they want the drug war to end but mm -hmm. it's a lot more complicated than just everyone who thinks that there are problems with drug policy should all be yeah because like invited to and, and allowed to have the same degree of uh, of, of focus mm -hmm. right like law enforcement is already in an incredibly hegemonic position and to what extent do we have we have no responsibility to allow law enforcement to participate in the conversation. Yeah, because we, we do we do actually, like, right. we do set boundaries, right? Like, we're not going to yeah. let, like, neo-Nazis who yeah. want to smoke weed come be here. And law enforcement, especially in the U.S., does represent, like, it's, in, it's inherently a white supremacist institution. And it's inherently a fascist institution. Yeah. So, you know, but it, it's... It's a... So it's like I feel like there's kind of two two areas to think about. Like one is is the actual specific people that are in this space, like and their comfort, um, after, you know, after being, um, you know, when when cops represent so much harm and violence, like do we want to maybe prioritize, um, you know. The, those people's comfort and safety at these things by not allowing cops, which is the same yeah. conversation that people have around um, having cops at Pride, for instance. Yeah. Pride events. That's a big thing in Canada. I don't know about down here, but they're oh, yeah. trying to get cops out of Pride for exactly the same reasons. Yeah. Um, and then there's also the other conversation about um, if we're if we want to fight um, drug prohibition. Um, and you know, fight for liberation. Like these, these are inherently fascist organizations, and so, like, fundamentally, in terms of our worldview, should we just draw a line? But I think it's interesting that when we add harm reduction to the conversation, that's that's the reason I've been kind of like thinking about it in less than a hardline position. Like my my instinct is to be like, no, fuck no, like get the cops out of here, absolutely not. But when you think about harm reduction, it's like, do we? Is it better to have like less violent cops if we're gonna have them at all? Yeah, and, like to a certain extent, like as the war on drugs is ended over the next insert amount of time, hopefully not an incredibly long time, we'll still need to deal with people who are in law enforcement positions. And if, as much as I do not care about alienating law enforcement, uh, at some point that kind of infrastructure has to be addressed, right? And if if we're absolutely unamenable to law enforcement personnel who want to be involved in the movement, then that will make it harder when we eventually get to a point where we have to have those sort of conversations, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
Also, Thank you. you say that you just the, the panel itself being led by law enforcement, and it's asking, you know, it's it's kind of that panel itself was kind of trying to prove to activists that law enforcement can have a role mm -hmm. in ending the war on drugs, and I don't think that was necessarily appropriate. Um, having a panel on like how to deal with law enforcement mm -hmm. or how to open up a discussion with them might have been more mm -hmm. appropriate than having like. Oh look, police can also join in on this because some of them are good. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, what that kind of that panel was saying to me, at least, and and how that can be even more traumatic for people who have had problems with the cops in the past. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm. And then it's also hard because at least so it it was just it was run this um, workshop kind of thing was run by it was like the communications person and then one who i'm sure was an ex-cop and the other one i because i didn't make it to the very beginning of it um i wasn't sh clear on whether he's a current or former cop and usually in these kind of anti-prohibitionist cop uh the, the, this anti-prohibitionist cop sphere it's like former cops and they did actually there were some interesting conversations about yeah how how insular um, police culture is um, and how they you know uh, how problematic police unions are which is yeah. another interesting I mean, thing because like yay unions are great but it's when it when it's a union of fascists like, yeah. maybe not so great yeah. I mean if, if you recognize that the statement all beyond violence is an illegitimate thing and there's not that many qualitative distinctions between police unions and organized crime like point. if we if we recognize the actions law enforcement takes in a lot of ways that are excused just because they're put up on this pedestal then there is no real mm -hmm. distinction right yeah yeah that's a good point um yeah so it was um yeah it was just but you know and i kept trying to put myself in the space of all right so i have never really had like personally um, I've never had many negative interactions with cops, but there are lots of other people who have had extremely negative interactions with cops, and like, are they all just not here? Like, I, I was actually surprised that nobody was a little bit more... I expected people in the audience to be more antagonistic, um, but I assumed that they just wouldn't even show up, um, which means that they're not... because they don't even feel safe around those people, they're not the ones critiquing them. So, yeah, like, I want to know what what to do at future events like this like should I come and like be antagonistic at the question period like I don't know um yeah it was um enlightening but um it, it, it does kind of get to the, the whole question that I think is underlying at least my own experience at this um, at this conference right now, the, the kind of big question that I'm watching people um, grapple with and trying to figure out myself, which is um, how much do we want to work within institutions and systems that are fundamentally corrupt, and how much do we want to just dismantle them and break them down? Because I think that there's a sort of practical approach to this kind of stuff that's like, well, of course, yeah, we want revolution. Like we want to, we want to dismantle all of these systems. But there's people in jail right now. There's people abusing drugs right now. We have to work within the systems to help them. But how much does that sort of like reify and 
perpetuate those systems? I think my biggest guiding principle as an activist, mm -hmm. given like the conditions that we're under right now in like, the capitalist system, and especially in drug policy, so trying to actually change the material conditions of people right now is really important. Mm -hmm. um, but then also organizing within like leftist groups as well, mm -hmm. because. And, but that doesn't mean that you have to compromise your values, mm -hmm. you know, like, because, just because, like, for example, volunteering on a needle exchange or something, like, you can improve people's material conditions without having to work with a libertarian or something like that, mm -hmm. like, working with Marijuana Policy Project or, like, the Cato Institute, you don't mm -hmm. have to do that, because that's not really improving anyone's, like, actual conditions. Yeah. Um, like, they're only useful insofar as maybe a gateway to a more leftist radical politics mm -hmm. like if, if somebody reads something from the Reason Institute about like why cannabis should be legal so that they can turn it into a massive corporate monopoly and sell it and make money from it like that's bad mm -hmm. but it's only useful in so far as maybe it gets people away from the idea that cannabis should just be illegal Yeah. Um, but yeah, it doesn't. Make so what you're it saying is libertarianism is only acceptable as a gateway drug to leftism. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. <laughs> pretty much. Which I mean. The only good gateway drug. Yeah. Um, which to be fair, it kind of was a gateway drug for me. Like my early politics were kind of libertarian because I was I don't know a teenager. I didn't know anything, but yeah. I knew that <coughs> drugs shouldn't be illegal, and I think that tied into a whole bunch of like you know, stuff about bodily autonomy, and I was really into, like, new atheism at the time back then, and, but, and, and, you know, like, critical thinking and all that kind of stuff, because that libertarian that we were talking to was really into, like, well, it's all about the data, and Empiricism. Blah, blah. Yeah, it's, I think, just whatever's, the, wherever the data is, I'm like, okay. Um, empiricism is actually an ideology. Hey, did you know that? Um, <laughs> whenever you're younger, you don't understand a whole lot about, like, economics. Mm -hmm. So people have a tendency to become socially le like leftist first you know, mm -hmm. before they understand like why libertarianism, why a capitalist economy is weird. Mm -hmm. Like libertarianism is definitely a critique of certain things, um, but yeah, I was a libertarian maybe for like a few months when I was. 16, which I think is the only acceptable time to be a libertarian. It's like when you're a teenager and you're just like, yeah, weed should be legal. Wait, why is the government telling anybody what to do? We should all just be able to do whatever we want and everything should be like free will. And then you learn about like art history and yeah. colonialism and white supremacy. And you're like, okay, wait, no, the world doesn't actually work like that. But drugs should still be legal. Right. Um, but yeah, so what do you guys think about... Um, why the word capitalism is mentioned so infrequently at this thing. As we're all chewing. Yeah. <laughs> chewing break. We're all eating this pizza. It's delicious. It's called Imo's Pizza. You should come here if you're ever in St. Louis. I wonder, to a certain extent, how much of it isn't a lack of endorsement of anti-capitalism but just an awareness of <clears throat> as people advocating the legalization, destigmatization of drugs 
to a certain extent, we're already situated in a place where people that are outside of the movement are unfamiliar with the arguments or, or the history or evidence, la di da di da, um, are already really incredulous towards a lot of the notions that are being put forward. And so I wonder to a certain extent how much of it is just a willful decision to try and mitigate how foreign and, and uh, <coughs> difficult to even conceptualize or engage with the things we're arguing for. I mean, I could see that um, as an intentional strategy on the DPA's part, like the Drug Policy Alliance that that organizes this conference, for sure, which, sure. That that was the uh, the entity to which I was referring to. Yeah, yeah, I think think that you're probably right in that, but like, but still, when we're just at panels and workshops and stuff, like, why is it, because people don't shy away from calling it white supremacy, you call it white supremacy and the audience will applaud you, like, it's like well-known and accepted, but I'm just not sure um, why there seems to be a class analysis that's lacking, unless it's just that the left has been so, like, so beaten down generally in the U.S. that it's been such a recent resurgence that not every, it's just not on everyone's radar yet. I would say that a lot of it has to do with politics in the U.S. as well. Like, you were saying, the left is really beat down in the U.S. as socialist And everywhere, parties. to be fair. Yeah, yeah, but especially in the U.S. Mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. But at the same time, in the U.S. you have this, like, huge... Like, there's a lot of identity politics mm-hmm. in the U.S. And, um, which is great, like, people talking about anti-colonialism and, mm-hmm. and white supremacy and things like that. And so the conversations are steered more towards that because there's a more tangible thing that you can... De- I don't know if demonize is the right word, but you know, you can mm-hmm. hate on white supremacists, you can hate on um, like colonialists, like imperialists, mm-hmm. but it's a lot harder for people to grasp the concept of like hating a capitalist mm. um, because they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I mean, I guess, well, although it's funny because I was going to say, because capitalism is so <laughs> ingrained in American society, like it's it's like the whole thing. Like it, it is America. Yeah, it yeah. is America. Yeah, um, <coughs> it's a global system, but like the American identity is so wrapped up in capitalist values that yeah, I could see it being being harder. Um, but at the same time, I say that, but it's equally wrapped up in white supremacy. Yeah. So, and people have started to figure that out. Um, so I guess it's like white people have finally started listening to black people who've been saying this stuff for hundreds of years, but we're still not listening to the working class who have also been saying this for hundreds of years. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. And I, maybe it, it's because <coughs> capitalism also has recently figured out that they can just monetize identity, identity yeah. politics, like that they can, it, it can, capitalism can adapt and you can have, um, yeah, yeah, like black yeah. and Latino and women like bank yeah, CEOs. Yeah, like business associations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that that was kind of it's always been a similar narrative though, is this idea of like somebody can make it, you know, like anybody can make it, and now it's moving towards more like let's 
empower certain people of color who have been left out of the narrative so that they can make it, but it's still like, okay, so they can make it as a CEO, as like a rich person. Um, and there's this lack of like cross analysis of being like, well, why are we in this spot in the first place? And you're seeing it in like in the cannabis business. Um, you have a lot of people calling for equality within the cannabis business, like removing barriers to entry, which is great, but also it's not questioning why we're trying to make business out of something that mm -hmm. should be available for everybody because it's healing and it's also for recreation or whatever somebody chooses with. Um, yeah. Yeah, it does seem like, yeah, it's like capitalism can morph to um, to absorb anything um, because in the end it's just still gonna, you know, you can, you can have, as long as it's like it, capital is still churning, um, anyone can kind of like succeed in the success system by... But um, but the final frontier is dismantling capitalism itself, um, because yeah, we've seen that as as int intricately and intimately tied white, as white supremacy is to capitalism in the way that it functions. We have seen that like capitalism can function without white supremacy and does in many places. Um, yeah. So even though they're super tied in together, the one form of oppression that it can't function without is just, I mean, oppression in general. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but it's not to say that, um, yeah, I mean, I guess if you're talking about dismantling capitalism we, we can't do it without dismantling white supremacy and colonialism um and that's yeah um, yeah other thoughts you know, we're all full of pizza um, there's one thing i wanted to bring up which yeah. i've been seeing a lot at the conference is kind of this disconnect between regular people who have who are volunteer based for the most part or like students or something like that and then people who have a career in activism. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like, I don't know, it's bothered me a lot because I really want to connect with these great um, activists, but they always seem to think that I'm trying to get something out of them. Really? When I talk to them, that's been my experience so far. Okay. Um, I talked to one person and he asked me, uh, he works in Austin, he asked me, like, what are you going to do after college? And I was like, I would really love to do something like this. And he basically was saying, well, we offer jobs, but basically I wasn't a likely candidate. And I was like, but I, I wasn't asking for a job, mm. you know? That wasn't mm -hmm. like... And then I just, just other experiences with activists who make a career out of it. Mm. Um, there's like that, I don't know, I find a disconnect between too. Yeah. It's very alienating as an activist. It makes me feel like I have no power and like I can't. It's very disempowering, very um, makes me feel like I can't really do anything and I'm not making a change in this movement. And I wonder, like I, I hear that and I get sort of like some thoughts about um, the fact that because there are so few jobs, there's so little money, the activist spaces can become kind of competitive. 
um, despite, you know, the, um, <laughs> thanks, despite the, our, our best attempts to, like, not allow that sort of, like, competitive mindset to enter these spaces, like, there, there are material realities about, like, finite resources, so maybe, yeah, people, people get protective over that stuff, but, however, I can't really speak to that in detail because I have been an academic for a long time and all of my activism is done kind of on the side of like my grad work so yeah I don't really know how those spaces function um, what do you think about the uh, sure the sense of, of alienation between those two specific camps of people just in especially in drug policy in general I find that okay. kind of disconnected I feel like I don't have any specific instances that are that are coming to mind where I felt that alienation on that specific like sort of axis. Um, but I feel like there's definitely. Uh, I mean, over over the course of the conference, it's always sort of odd that there's this back and forth between like feeling very much part of, of, of a singular community that has a purpose and an identity and it and momentum, and then within a matter of hours being in a, in a different sort of context where you feel very separated from whatever's kind of happening. Um, I, I feel like um, just because of uh, I'm, I'm, I'm here as, as part of a harm reduction organization and I, I feel like there is a really tangible sort of divide between the, the people who are involved in drug policy reform um, because they have have seen or, or personally experienced the really negative consequences of, um, you know, of, of prohibition or of addiction or, or these sort of things, and people who are uh, at, at least initially uh, become involved in, in drug policy reform because they have had positive experiences with substances, mm-hmm. um, and that's something that. coming to a drug policy reform conference, I don't expect to be having that kind of disjuncture in, in, in the discourse I'm having with people that I interact with, and it's always kind of, it throws me off yeah. when I have to remind myself that even in, in a, a place like, like this, that there's still a lot that isn't consensus, right? Mm. Um, mm. And that goes back to you know, the question of where's the middle ground between having a very specific focus and, and, and unitary understanding of what we're focusing on and, and at what point does that just become needless alienation of people that could be helping, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, yeah. Uh, um, oh, God, what was his name? Uh, Joe there was a panel today where they were talking about um, the idea of holding complexity, mm-hmm. and um, did you did you go to that one by any chance? It's like the queer queer and trans uh, liberation mm-hmm. and um, mutual aid. Yeah. Um, Joanza Williams, who is part of Vocal, who is this amazing activist organization. I could see them around and hearing them, and I went to a 
uh, a, a workshop yesterday where a bunch of people from Vocal were talking about like what in their campaigns have and haven't worked. I felt so alive when I was there. It was so good. It was like, you know, actually talking about concrete action. Um, whereas, you know, in a couple weeks, I'm going to this big anthropology conference where as much as I love that conference and I'm excited for it, it's such a different space where people yeah. are just thinking and talking about thinking. Um, anyways, so Jawanza Williams and uh, Rebecca Keel and Rajni Gudlavaletti definitely pronounced that wrong. Apologies for that. Um, they were talking about, uh, yeah, the idea of holding complexity that like we, that like all of these issues are complex and we can hold them simultaneously, like we can hold these contradictions um, and still, you know, work and move forward um, because we don't want the idea of all of these contradictions to be paralyzing, right? <laughs> and, um, uh, Joanza Williams also said something that um, really resonated with me that uh, was about the fact that to, to imagine and like work towards um, justice and a better society and imagining a better future, that has to be done collectively. Like it's okay if we can't answer all these questions like alone in our heads because we're not, because we're social creatures and like this is how we come to consensus and, and, and come to these um, ways of moving forward is like collectively and using the collective imagination instead of the individual one. And I thought that was a really cool way of kind of like relieving some of the tension that like I personally find around like not being able to answer and grapple with all these questions in my head because as an academic especially I'm used to like you have to have answers or like well not always. Anthropologists are good at like it's okay to not have answers and you can just be asking questions but you kind of like feel like you want to be able to put everything in boxes and figure everything out and, and have solutions, um, but that it's okay to, to just not um, and to come to that collectively. So I just thought that was cool. Yeah. So final thoughts, I guess we should probably get back to the conference. Yeah. <laughs> We're done our pizza. How, how do you feel? about this conference. Are you having a good time? I don't know. I have mixed yeah. reviews. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh. Again, uh, I mean, there's been a couple of discrepancies. There was um, somebody from Marijuana Policy Project. I think he was the original, like, founder or something. He's here. He was actually at a panel about sex workers, and he's, like, had multiple accusations of sexual assault. Oh, fuck. Um, and they haven't asked him to leave, despite, like, the panelists actually called him out in the room and were like, this person is here. Why is he here? Like, he's sexually assaulted women. Damn. Um, that aspect of having law enforcement here bothers yeah. me. Um, yeah. But the panels have been really wonderful, mm -hmm. all in all. The ones that I've seen um, have been pretty, like, inclusive. Mm -hmm. But again, I do wish there was more of that, like, capitalist name-calling. Yeah. Call, yeah. Out, yeah. call it out. And, We're talking, we talk a lot about yeah. this sort of, like, this yeah, vision and yeah. blah blah blah. Like the vision is socialism. Yeah, <laughs> like, and just need to say it. Yeah, and I mean, prohibition came about because of like employers trying to control their employees and mm -hmm. and the capitalist bourgeois class trying to control the proletariat. And mm -hmm. then identity politics came into that with racism helping them demonize people and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So if 
I feel like if people, if we had a panel or just like a discussion that explained that, then people would be able to name call it a little bit more. Yeah, which absolutely. Is so yeah. we do need it. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is nothing wrong with hostility. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, thanks, guys. This has been Mason Burks and Allison Todd um, for this lovely pizza conversation. I hope it was audible over the sound of our <laughs> chewing and the various background noises. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. it for bread and poppies this week thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed it and uh, a big thank you to all of my patreon supporters i do have a patreon patreon.com slash hillary aggro that's hillary with one l because i'm the good hillary i'm not the hillary with two l's we all know which that one is i'm the good one uh, the Patreon is to support my research, um, as well as fundraise for an educational video project I'd eventually like to start. Uh, I, I know that I am I'm kind of caught in this catch-22 with the Patreon where if I was able to make more content, I know that I would get more supporters and more supporters would enable me to make more content. But I only have so much time right now based entirely on, on childcare and being able to afford more childcare hours. Um, in which to get this work done. So yeah, it's kind of a, a difficult situation where I have so many ideas for the podcast and a lot of content that I want to make and particularly a lot of interviews I want to do. I'd really like to be able to start having an interview every week um, and not just, you know, sort of opportune moments where I can record conversations with people. I think that's that's great too. But, and I, I do have a lot of contacts and people, people who know me on Twitter know that I have, um, you know, an an okay following and I, I know a lot of people that I would love to be able to get on the show, but I just literally can't afford to quite yet, uh, until I get a few more Patreon supporters. So hopefully that will be content that that's coming. I'll at least have a bit more time in the summer when I move back to Toronto and get a bit more uh, childcare help from from family and everything. But yeah, in the meantime, I really appreciate everybody who supports me and hopefully we can get some interviews going at some point. And thank you in the meantime for listening. I love you all. Thank you again to the people who have volunteered for Bernie. You are the heroes. And I hope that everyone is feeling good this week with this win. We're gonna win more going forward. We're going to just be sick of winning. So much winning. Have a great week, guys.